Good morning. For those of you who do not know, my name is Dan Gilchrist. I am, as far as I know, the pastor here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church by God's amazing and powerful grace. And um, I have been away for several weeks on vacation, and it has been good to be away, to be refreshed, and to be rested. It is good now to be back in the pulpit uh, to reflect on the glory of our God's love in the living and present reign of his son, Jesus Christ. Some of you know that I want to draw our attention to portions of the worship service that we get carried along through without really paying attention to them. And the song that we just sang is one such occasion. There's a sense in which I wish we could spend the next half hour just singing that song repeatedly until the realities of it and the implications of it seep down into our souls so that we are changed by it. I would encourage you to reflect on it through the rest of this day and through the rest of this week and asking yourself, what does a life of adoration look like? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What is the, a life of adoring the King to whom all glory and all praise is due? What does that look like? Paul is going to share some of that with us in Romans chapter 12 as we continue our summer series. Our summer series has been on the topic or on the question, how do you feel? And we remember that early on, we were reminded that the question is not one of content, it's one of skill and technique. How does one go about feeling? What are the skills and the techniques involved in feeling well? As God's people... In a, world, in a world of despair, how does the gospel train us and equip us to feel differently than the way our world feels? To feel well in a world that feels so poorly. And one of the, what we have been saying is that as our feelings, as our emotions, as our passions are rooted in the gospel faith and harnessed to the gospel hope, they will quite unavoidably and faithfully be expressed in the gospel love. And it is this last portion to which we turn our attention today and then throughout August. As our feelings and our emotions are rooted in the gospel faith and harnessed to the gospel hope, they will quite unavoidably and faithfully be expressed in the gospel love. It's the life that other portions of scripture call uh, the life of holiness or the life of righteousness. What Paul is describing in our passage today as the life of the love. For as we feel well, we will live well. And at the heart of living well is loving well.
And so with that brief recap, allow me to read Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9 and reading through verse 21. I do want to back up, however, and get a running start by reading the sort of thesis statement that we have for us in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Paul begins, having, having beheld the glory and sung the praises of the glory of God's love, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be transformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Such a great couple verses. So poetic, so powerful. In fact, so poetic and so powerful that it's easy for us to think that we know what he's talking about. And so, as though we were to have asked him, what is it to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship? Paul begins to describe for us what that looks like. Verses 3 through 8, we realize it's humble, it's united, and it's diverse. And then picking up with verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us, his people, in the 21st century. So let us go and ask that by his spirit, he would grant us ears to hear it. So, Father, we do come. And to this point and this hour that you have set aside, indeed, that you have sanctified by your spirit for us to be gathered in your presence as your people to feast together upon the word of your glory, the word of your love, the word of your son, Jesus Christ. And so as Paul has prayed in other places, we pray that you would grant us the inner strength and courage to hear well, to see well, to believe well, to rejoice well, to live well. To that end, protect us from error and feast us upon the glory of your truth in Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. 
We don't watch much TV in our house, but one of the classes of shows that my wife and I love to watch are these new police detective shows that focus on forensic technologies, science, and related sleuthing, you know, shows like CSI. We all know that's what CSIs do. You know what I'm talking about. Something as small as a hair fallen from a potential suspect, a little blood droplet, saliva. They walk in and they have those really cool ultralight or um, ultraviolet flashlights. And they walk around in these strangely dark rooms. I've always wondered if you're looking for something, why aren't you turning on the lights? And then boom, they walk around the corner from across the room. They spot the sparkle of saliva that was, that was left two weeks ago under the radiator when the suspect sneezed. Gotcha. Love it. And we all know it works that way. Some of the more interesting episodes in these shows are when the forensics teams is hot on the trail of a suspect and you are tracking right along with them. After the first couple shows, I thought, I could do this. All evidence seems to point to one character. And except for the fact that we have been led to believe that this is the guy before the first commercial break, we all think, of course that's the guy. He looks like someone who would do that. He sounds like someone who would do that. He acts like someone who would do that. He even walks like someone to do, who would do that. And in case we're missing the point, his name is Guido. Then, sure enough, before the next commercial break, we're not so sure. We click through the commercials as fast as possible. The suspense is killing us, which is something you can only do in this generation. We couldn't do that in previous generations of TV watching. And lo and behold, back from commercial break, that one niggling piece of evidence that just doesn't fit the story has caught the attention of some nerd in the back office who secretly, unbeknownst to anyone else, has taken the evidence and he's run it through his special DNA decoder machine. And voila! a completely different match in CODIS. Who knew? Of course. We didn't see that coming. Science in the service of justice again. I feel so bad for having judged that guy just because his name is Guido. Lesson learned. It may look like a duck. It may sound like a duck. It may even walk like a duck, but until the DNA evidence comes back, you'd better withhold judgment. More seriously, I had a similar and more serious soul-bending experience when I first went to Japan as a Christian missionary. I say Christian missionary because you know that there are other kinds of missionaries, don't you? I went to, missionary, to Japan as a missionary because, well, why does anyone go anywhere as a missionary? Because they were lost. Rank pagans. Didn't know Jesus. They were miserable, mean people. 
And we all know this, after all. Have you seen Mr. Miyagi and the way he treats the kids? Wax on, wax off. Come on, give me a break. They're all kamikaze pilots, whether they're wearing their rising sun headbands or carrying their sleek businessmen briefcases. Some of you remember how paranoid we were in the 1980s that Japan was going to accomplish economically what they couldn't accomplish militarily three decades before. There was only one problem with all of this. You see, Japanese are Confucian Buddhist Shintoists. These are some of the most disciplined people you will ever meet. They make better Christians than Christians. Anyone from anywhere in the world who travels to Japan will tell you that Japanese are the absolute sweetest, kindest, most generous and giving and humble people you could ever possibly meet, with the possible exception of native-born Southerners. I mean, you guys know Mako, right? Point proven. And this was deeply confusing to me. After all, if Christianity was about knowing Jesus so that you could be nice, then why in the world was I in Japan? These are the nicest people around. Although they didn't look Christian, after all, Christians are white, right? They did sound like Christians. By the way, that was a joke for those of you who might not have gotten that. They did sound like Christians, and they did walk like Christians. So what was left to do? You see, the genuine gospel life and ministry of Christ's love in the deep south can be similarly confusing and soul-bending. For brothers and sisters, I don't know if you know it, but we are surrounded by a culture and a people that look Christian, sound Christian, and even walk like Christians. People from other parts of the nation will tell you that driving in the South is very strange. In fact, a friend recently sent me a video advertising the bless your heart car horn. Have you seen that? Been making the rounds, look it up. So that when the driver in front of you is slow to move when the light turns green, it honks, I hate to bother you, but I think the light just turned green. Or when you're really perturbed, someone cuts you off in traffic, why, it looks like someone just got their driver's license, bless your heart. A culture and a people that look Christian, that sound Christian, even walk Christian, but in fact do not know Jesus. We often encounter those who look loving, who sound loving, who even appear to walk loving, but in fact, don't know the first thing about love. So living as genuine Jesus followers in such a place, how can we spot 
More importantly, how can we cultivate genuine, authentic love? Love that distinctively marks us, that distinctively identifies us as genuine Christians. The love of the triune God as seen in Jesus working itself out among his people. Scripture gives us a sort of DNA profile of such love. Against which we can evaluate our own love of God, self, and others. And by which we can identify the genuine love of Jesus when we encounter it. For you see, when our feelings and emotions and passions are rooted in the gospel faith. And are harnessed to the gospel hope. Our lives will increasingly and irresistibly and visibly be marked. By the gospel love. So what is the DNA profile of this genuine gospel love? Romans 12 is one place among others that Paul provides a sort of DNA profile of this genuine gospel love that we should be on the lookout for. That we should be spurring one another on to. That is the love of the triune God as revealed in the person and work of Jesus So what is that? We look at our passage and we notice, first of all, that in verse 9, Paul says that the ESV reads, let love be genuine. You may have a translation that reads, let the love be genuine, because in fact there is an article there. And so that the, that, um, the ESV, because it makes for awkward English, has left out. But I think actually ought to be in there because Paul is speaking not just about any old love, but a particular distinctive love. He's talking about the love, the love by which and to which we have all been called. Such love, in quick summary, is sober, as we see in verses 3 through 8. But in our passage, it's sincere, it's discerning, it's devoted, it's honorable, it's zealous, it's patient, it's generous, it's hospitable, it's willing the good of others, it's sympathetic, it's harmonious, it's humble. And it is all of these things towards others. It's not just all of these things in abstraction, but it's all of these things in the flesh toward others including enemies. And any one element of it missing, and it becomes something other than the genuine gospel love of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. Very quickly, in terms of verses 3 through 8, it's sober. Paul starts out, verse 3, saying, not to think more highly or more lowly of ourselves or others, than we ought. And we can get into that, but in Paul's mind, the oughtness of how we think about ourselves is not by taking a poll, a public opinion poll. It's about what does the Father, how has the Father demonstrated that He loves you? What has the Father said and demonstrated in history of His delight in you? 
But as we get into verse 9, this love is sincere. The word there is literally, excuse me, is literally without hypocrisy. That is to say, there's, there's no duplicity in the gospel love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in the Deep South, do you understand what this means? There is zero room for the bless your heart duplicity of the South. Not only is it sincere, let love be genuine, but it is discerning, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. One commentator says, it seems strange to, be, to open up by saying, love what it, let love be genuine and then hate. It seems jarring. And yet the gospel love discerns evil and discerns good. It abhors evil and it pursues the good, whether in self or in others. You understand that it's not loving for us not to challenge one another in lifestyle habits or choices that lead to our death. It's not loving for me as a father to watch my daughter chase her bouncy ball into the street and say, have fun, because it will kill her. Love is discerning. It hates evil and clings to good, whether we find it in ourselves or in others, with sincerity. Without manipulation, but sincerity. But verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. There's, there's, um, Paul is, is trying to describe a love that heretofore has not been known in the world. And so he's, he's struggling to stretch known language to fit. And so he uses language of devotion. Family devotion. Be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another. Think of the language of um, Jericho. When, G when God told the people to come into Jericho, he said, he said, destroy it and devote the entire city to me. Everything in it belongs to me. Devote it all to me. That's the language here of devotion. It's a familial affection. We're, it's, it's an affection rooted in the bond of blood. And yet, where in, in our culture we have the idiom that says blood is thicker than water. Paul's idea here is that in fact the water of baptism is thicker than the blood of family. And what he's saying is be devoted at that level. Deeper than a family devotion. Verse 10 goes on in the second part. Outdo one another in showing honor. Thinking more highly of one another. Is at least what Paul means. But as the ESV picks up, there seems to be a competition. Outdo one another in thinking the other better. 
outdo one another in thinking more highly of the other. Brothers and sisters, you understand that this cuts at the very core of what our culture most highly values. Because we have been taught by our culture to think most highly of ourselves and then in varying degrees of others as they spread out from us. To think most highly of ourselves and our dreams and our agendas and our plans than that of anyone else. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that if we chose just this virtue alone of seeking to outdo one another in honor as our so-called virtue of the year, if we were to focus on this one alone to cultivate Do you understand how radically different and strange we would be in this world? But not only so, he goes on, verse 11. Not only ought we be sincere and discerning and devoted and honorable, we ought to be zealous in all of this stuff. Zealous. Not just, oh, if I have time. Not just, oh, if it happens to come up, to be zealous for this. Energetic and focused on seeing the glory of Christ's love deepened and broadened and multiplied in one another and through one another in the world around us. Zealous. Think about Paul or at the time known as Saul, on the road to Damascus, in zeal for the righteousness of God. He had, he had gone and he had, gotten, he had made a case and he had received papers and he was now raging on the road to Damascus because of a zeal for the righteousness of God. And when he met Jesus, let me tell you, he did not lose that zeal. But that zeal was was recalibrated and it began to be zeal what he says it calls earlier in Romans zeal according to knowledge zeal that is rooted in the knowledge of the glory of God's love in Jesus Christ that's the zeal that we see playing out in the book of Acts that's the zeal that causes him to rejoice while he's in prison That's the zeal that causes him to look at the Roman centurion and say, is it right for you to do this since I'm a Roman citizen? That's the zeal that he has in view here. An unflagging zeal that was now rooted in the faith and harnessed to the hope of God's great love in Jesus. And so, verse 12, it is patient in tribulation. Is patient, this love. Because it is rejoicing in the hope that we've talked about before, it is patient in tribulation, whether personal, interpersonal, or world. It waits patiently for the good and the wise and the trustworthy timing of the Lord to bring to further and ultimate perfect completion that which he has begun in us, and in one another, in our enemies, and in our world. This is not stiff upper lipism, 
But this is a joyful, eager, watchful anticipation to see the reality of God's glory, the reality of God's kingdom becoming increasingly visible in one another's lives and the life of the world around us. It's patient. And it's hospitable. It's, it's patient and it is generous. Look at there, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. It is big-hearted. It is open-handed. It is big-hearted and open-handed with ourself, with our possessions, with our finances, with our time. Because it is rooted in the dimensions of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ that reach all the way to the right and all the way to the left and all the way into the future and all the way into the past and all the way to the throne of heaven and all the way to the depths of our sin. It is generous for those around you, not in abstraction, but is actually a virtue that, is, that, that um, cannot be speaked of, spoken of in, in abstraction, but is one that must be lived. It is a virtue that is practiced. It is a practiced virtue in community. For the word for generous here is koinoneo which is the word from which we get communion and fellowship. It rejoices to share in the needs and sufferings of one another as well as sharing resources in the midst of such times. It is what is depicted for us in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 as the normal life of the New Jerusalem church. And so it's also hospitable it seeks to show hospitality. It is open-tabled. It is open-housed. It is open-lived to one another and even to strangers. It seeks, it goes out on the highways and byways and say, come and eat with me. I saw a quote recently in which the person said, if we are actually consumed by the love of Jesus Christ, we will not build higher fences. We will build longer tables. Because the love of Christ as revealed in the gospel is hospitable. But it also wills the good. It proactively seeks and prays for and looks for the good. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Blessing and cursing throughout scripture is an either or scenario. You can bless or you can curse. But if you withhold blessing, you are effectively cursing. Do you understand? The love, the gospel love of Jesus Christ that becomes an irresistible characteristic of us is a love that wills the good of the other. Not as they understand it, and not as I understand it, but as the triune God himself has revealed it in the person of Jesus Christ. It's sympathetic. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We are attentive to and engaged with how others are processing their life and their circumstances. 
There's no room in this scenario of love for the whole sucks-to-be-you dismissiveness. But we actually enter into, we, we feel with the other the difficulty of sharing the load. It's harmonious. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It's harmonious. That is, at one mind and heart, and just for the sake of discussion and time, just remember that harmony is not the same as unison. When we sing in unison, we all sing the same thing. When we sing in harmony, as Scott has been trying to teach us, we're all singing different notes that fit together and make one beautiful whole. And that's harmony. We don't have to be exactly like each other, but we do have to harmonize with one another. Which is why humility in the next part of that sentence is so important. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And so we come full circle. We have a sober assessment of ourself and others in light of God's glorious love in Jesus Christ. And so we find that in fact, as we grow in this love, we are in fact no better than another. And so we are known to freely and fully and proudly associate with those our society has taught us are the least, the lost, and the lonely. We're not ashamed to be seen in public with people who are ashamed to be seen in public with themselves. Because Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be seen in public with us. And all of this, all of this, sincerity, discernment, devotion, honor, and zeal, and patience, and generosity, and hospitality, and goodwill, and sympathy, and harmony, and humility, all of this is exercised even toward enemies. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what I'm saying here? If we are not seeking to cultivate this kind of love even toward our enemies, then we are seeking to cultivate something that is less than gospel love. Because that's who Jesus Christ is. Any one element of these things missing and it becomes something other than the genuine gospel love of Christ, you can call it another gospel. And as far as our passage goes, these are the distinctive marks of gospel love, the love that is rooted in the faith and harnessed to the hope. This is its DNA. The lifestyle of such a love, of Christ's gospel love, listen to me, is the unavoidable and visible result of feelings and emotions and passions that are increasingly captive to and transformed by the gospel faith and carried along by the gospel hope. Such love will not cede its place and take second class status. For as Paul is trying to teach us here, one who has seen the glory of this love that he just sings the praises of in chapter 11 is consumed and compelled by this love. That's what he's describing in chapter, in chapter 12, 1 and 2. He does not say, 
It, such, such a person captivated by such a glory does not say, oh, oh, hey, hey, let me run home and say goodbye first to my family. It doesn't say, let me go and bury my father first. It does not say, let me get my finances and retirement in order and in place. It does not say, let me first secure my hopes and dreams. It does not say, let me carefully guard my time, my space, my plans, my agenda. It doesn't say, let me first perfect my skills and wisdom. Brothers and sisters, when we are blindsided by the locomotive of God's glorious love in Jesus Christ, all these other things take a back seat. This is normal. This is the normal, reasonable Christian life. In verse, in chapter, in verse 1, we say, as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable, which is, and the language there in the ESV is spiritual worship, logical service, reasonable service. Given the glory of the gospel faith, the gospel hope in Christ, which Paul has just described, this joy-filled, sacrificial life of praising love toward one another and even enemies is just normal. It's just normal. There's nothing out of the ordinary that I'm saying here. There's nothing beyond the gospel that I'm saying here. There's nothing less than the gospel that I'm saying here. This is just normal. This is just reasonable. As F.F. Bruce describes it, acceptable obedience is always the grateful response of redeemed hearts to the multiplied mercies of God. Paul knows that if his readers have truly understood his exposition in the doctrines of grace, this knowledge will be clearly exhibited in a holy walk. Another commentator writes, that such a worshiping, loving lifestyle is, quote, intelligent, understanding worship that is consonant with the truth of the gospel. Nothing less than the offering of one's whole self in the course of one's concrete living in one's inward thoughts, feelings, and aspirations, but also in one's words and deeds. Another commentator has his, has his thoughts that such a lifestyle is the reasonable service, the logical worship that proceeds from that which is distinctive among human beings as rational, reflective creatures whose highest powers are engaged in the homage they bring to their creator. Lives that are increasingly marked by such live, love are lives that are increasingly marked by the glory of their creator and their redeemer Lord. This is how we were created. This is what it means for us to bear the image of God. This is what it means to live well. We were designed for this. It's unavoidable. It's irresistible. It's reasonable. Even the Stoic philosopher Epictetus understood this principle for it when he wrote, If indeed I were a nightingale, I should be singing as a nightingale. If I were a swan, I'd sing as a swan. But as it is, I am a rational being, therefore I must be singing hymns of praise to God. And I exhort you to join me in this same song. Brothers and sisters, hear me. This is not legalism. 
This is not a matter of quid pro quo. It's a matter of design. If I want to live, I am required to breathe. There's nothing cruel or unreasonable in making that statement. This is the way life works. We are designed as image bearers to honor God with our praising and loving lives. This is what it means to be a human being and to live well as such. And now in Christ, you see our praising muscles and our loving muscles that had been broken beyond all apparent hope of repair have now been repaired so that now we can live well, so that now we can feel well, so that now we can love well according to our design. Brothers and sisters, this is design of flourishing human life. It is, this is holiness. This is worship. It is the peacemaking mission of Christ. This life of Christ's own love is our reasonable service because it is our design. It is our privilege. It is our obligation. It is required of us. It is the service, shall I say, the liturgy of a reasonable life well lived. As this love becomes an increasingly visible mark of our lives, we become agents of Christ's peacemaking mission. This is the faith, and this is the hope, and this is the love of the gospel. When we feel well, we will live well, and the heartbeat of living well is loving well. If we are in Christ, this is who we are who we are called to be, who we are required to be, who we are obligated to be. For this is Christ, and this is Christ's mission to make all things new. Let's pray.